Section three of The Luck of the Dudley Grahams by Alice Calhoun Haynes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Section three, December fifth through December eighth. Friday, December fifth. This morning we had a call from Aunt Adelaide. She came to advise us because she had heard about Mrs. Hudson. Aunt Adelaide does not call very often, but when she does, she makes the best of her time. Today she had Georgie with her, so charmingly dressed. He wore a dear little fur-lined overcoat and a cap with snug earlaps and a jaunty cockade. How I wanted them for Robin, who took cold yesterday when Ernie had him out on her sled. It was the first snowstorm of the season, and Bob's did so beg to go. But today he is in bed again, suffering with rheumatism in his back. Dear, patient little lamb, so much sickness is most unfortunate reproved aunt adelaide can't you subordinate the children a little more margaret how can you expect people to stop in a house where there is continual invalidism i don't expect it returned mother cheerfully it is a perpetual surprise to me that anybody should stay aunt adelaide stiffened have you considered the consequences if they did not she asked yes admitted mother we should starve i suppose since man does not live by advice alone george was really very much put out when he heard that you had lost mrs hudson continued aunt adelaide it is most discouraging you are beginning to get along quite nicely and a man who has so many heavy responsibilities naturally feels each extra burden of course agreed mother it must be very trying to have poor relations i am sure here georgie interrupted you said i should visit with bobsy mamma he cried i want to go up now and tell him about my new rocking horse it's stupid down here elizabeth will take you love answered his mother apparently without the least thought of subordination so i took georgie by the hand and led him up to the nursery when i returned to the library the conversation had been switched positively he grows worse and worse aunt adelaide was saying as i entered the room Yesterday he was openly impertinent to me, and flatly refused to accompany Mita to dancing school. I do not wish to bring the affair to his father, who is rather severe at times, but I declare there is no managing the boy. He won't study, he has no manners, and he resents interference in any direction. It was Geoffrey, of course, and I felt sorry. So did Mother. The mocking note had quite died from her voice as she answered simply and kindly, I think you are a little unjust, Adelaide. Geoffrey requires tactful handling, I know. He is apt to be sullen at times. He is not bookish, but in his own way, along the mechanical line, it seems to me that he is really clever. Aunt Adelaide sighed. Heaven forbid his being an inventor. One is misfortune enough for any family. Mother merely smiled that little quiet smile of hers, and asked how Mita was progressing with her music. She will never discuss father with either Aunt Adelaide or Uncle George, but the attack was not to be so easily repelled, and Aunt Adelaide returned to it a moment later by asking bluntly if there had been any further news of Mr. Perry, and whether we had given up all hope of finding the contract. George says the whole affair is entirely typical of poor Dudley, she declared. He has not an ounce of patience with it. And then, after a few further generalities, Aunt Adelaide prepared to leave, quite unconscious that she had said anything to wound or offend anyone, and I was sent upstairs to fetch Georgie. I knew that there was trouble as soon as I opened the nursery door. 
for Bobs in his little old flannel dressing gown was sitting up very straight and white-lipped in Mother's big bed, pretending to look at a picture book, while Georgie, with red face and hands thrust deep in his knickerbocker pockets, was standing by the window pretending to look out. "'I'll tell you something more you don't know,' said Robin, glancing up from his book after a moment's silence. They had neither of them seen me enter the room. "'Shall I?' "'I know more than you do,' chanted Georgie monotonously. "'You don't know what a chimera is, and you don't know what a gorgon is, and you don't know what a hippogriff is, and you don't know what a ninkum is. You wouldn't if you saw one. And you don't know what a siren is, and you don't know what a Syrian is now neither, do you?' George seemed rather overpowered by this erudite outburst, but he reiterated stubbornly, "'I know more than you do.' "'What's a very imp?' asked Bobs excitedly. "'You don't know. And what's a jabberwock?' And what's a mock turtle? You eat it in soup, answered Georgie, brightening up a bit. We had it the night the general came, and William let me taste some out of a teaspoon in the butler's pantry. So there. Nonsense. Bob's scorn was withering. Maybe you'd eat a ninkum in fish cakes. We don't. A mock turtle was once a real turtle, and... But here I thought it best to interfere. Aunt Adelaide is going, Georgie, I said. You'd better come downstairs now. As soon as Georgie saw me, he put his finger in his mouth and began to cry, and asked to be taken down to Mama, for Bobsey was rude to him, and said he didn't know things. That certainly is not very polite to company, I answered for Robin's best good, and took Georgie by the hand and led him away. But just as we reached the foot of the stairs, I heard the unrepentant Robin sing out triumphantly, I'll tell you some more things you don't know, too. You don't know what a crusader is, nor a centaur, nor you don't know nothing. Georgie was quite overcome by this last taunt. He clenched his fist savagely. I just guess I do know something, he sobbed. I'm going to ask Mama if I don't. And he broke away from me and ran into the parlor. Of course, Aunt Adelaide soothed him and assured him that he knew a great deal for a little boy of his age, but that he must be patient with his little sick cousin. So Georgie stopped crying and looked virtuous, while Aunt Adelaide explained to Mother that she knew just how it was in regard to Robin, and thought it only natural that he should be pettish and quarrelsome, and that she would bring Georgie soon again to cheer him up, after which our visitors departed in quite a pleasant glow of self-satisfaction, and Mother went downstairs to the kitchen, very mad, to superintend the preparation of luncheon, and I ran up to the nursery, very mad, to try and soothe Robin's ruffled spirits. Nor did it take me long to learn the cause of the disagreement, for Bobsey was only too eager to confide. It seems that among his other new possessions, Georgie has a nursery governess who is teaching him to read, and though Robin did not mind about the pony, and never once thought of envying the fur-lined overcoat and cap, he could not bear to be told that Georgie knew more than he did. The idea is really ridiculous to anyone who knows the two children, but on the whole, it had been an excellent thing for Master Robin to face, for now he is determined to learn to read, too, a proposition we could never get him to entertain before, as he always said he preferred to lie still and listen. I am to give him lessons each morning, and if he sets his mind to it, I am sure he will get on rapidly. Just think, dearest Hayes walked home from school this afternoon, though it is over three miles, and bought a string for my mandolin with his car fare. Not many brothers would think of a thing like that. Sunday, December 7th. Mrs. Hudson's room is not yet rented. 
We have not even had any answers to our advertisement. The strain is beginning to tell on us all, more or less, I think, and yesterday morning Hazard carried out his intention of calling at Uncle George's office and applying for a position. I wish he hadn't. Mother agrees with me that it was a mistake. Indeed, she was quite shocked and hurt at what she considered his lack of confidence in her. She told him very gravely that he had no right to take a step of so much consequence without her consent, and that the little he can make will in no way compensate for the loss of his education. Poor Hazy! He was so disappointed. He had expected the news would be received very differently. He did not say much, but thrust his hands deep into his trouser pockets, threw back his head, and strolled whistling from the room. I followed up to the workshop as soon as I was able, and I think he had been crying. "'Well, tell me about your position, Hayes,' I began, in as sprightly tones as I could muster, for we had not heard any of the details yet. "'There's nothing to tell,' answered Hazard gruffly. "'I'm to run errands, post letters, and that sort of thing at three dollars a week.' "'Oh, Hazy,' I gasped, for it was a shock. "'Hazard is certainly clever, and we'd always expected such different things for him.' "'Yes,' says Hayes bitterly. "'It's Uncle George's idea, and I suppose he knows what he is about.' I gave him every opportunity, and put the matter to him squarely. There was no use in false modesty, so I told him first thing that I had had a year of Greek and two years of Latin, and led my geometry class, but that we needed money at home, and so I had determined to sacrifice my future, and rent my brains at their highest market value. "'Did you really say all that?' I asked. "'Yes, I did,' answered Hazard, a little defiantly. "'Perhaps it was a mistake, but I wanted to make things plain.' Uncle George didn't answer just at first. He looked me up and down, in that way he has, and then he said, Young fellow, you've got a lot to learn yet. If any other cockerel came crowing to me in my office, I'd show him the door. Understand one thing. I haven't any use for talent in my business, though I had been most particular, Elizabeth, to use the word brains. Can you remember what's told you? Can you sweep out a room and not forget the corners? Can you jump when sent on errands? Then apply to Mr. Bridges in the outside office. I believe we're losing a boy today. Perhaps you are bright enough to fill his place, though you don't look it. Well, I applied and got the position, concluded Hayes, and that's all there is to it. There did not seem much for me to say, since Hayes was not in a mood to be grateful for platitudes. Uncle George was certainly severe, but maybe he meant it for a lesson, and from something that happened this afternoon, I am tempted to think it was not entirely wasted. We were all gathered in the workshop after dinner, Geoffrey, Ernie, and myself, wrapped in golf cloaks and overcoats, disputing about our favorite apostles, when Hayes, who had been rather subdued and broodful the greater part of the day, entered the room. He had a notebook under his arm. "'Going to study, Hazy?' I asked him, for he intends to keep up his Latin, and Mother has promised to help. "'No,' he answered, with really appalling solemnity. "'I have written my first poem.' "'Your first what?' roars Jeff. "'Poem,' admitted Hayes, blushing a bit. "'My hat,' murmurs Jeff. "'This is so sudden. "'But go on, old chap. "'Let's have it. "'Don't mind me.' "'If you treat the matter with respect,' says Hayes, "'suddenly on his dignity, "'I'll read it to you. "'Otherwise I won't.' "'Fire ahead,' urged Geoffrey, "'who was simply on the qui vive to hear. "'We're as respectful as you please. "'We'll listen and then criticize.' "'No larks, mind,' warned Hazard. "'According to my own ideas, this is the real stuff.' And as we settled ourselves to attention in the flying machine, he began, 
in what I can only call an uplifted sort of voice. The young man and the world. The young man faces the stern, cold world. Oyster, he says, oh, oyster. There was a hysterical gurgle from Jeff and a fierce, keep quiet, can't you, from Ernestine. I've told you, says Hazard, interrupting himself to look severely over his glasses, that it is perfectly indifferent to me whether you hear this thing or not. I don't care a hang for your literary opinions, and I'll not be guyed about it. Go on, pleaded Geoffrey, with a watery sidelong look at me. Who's guying you? So Hayes began afresh. The young man and the world. The young man faces the stern, cold world. Oyster, he says, oh, oyster, open thy shell, and show me thy pearl, like the hidden wealth of a cloister. The cold world answers never a word. The youth is bound, if he can, to take up his pickaxe and work for himself, till he prove that he is a man. Ho, ho, exploded Jeff, unable to restrain himself a moment longer. Pickaxe is good. That's the way to get after him. Bully for you, old boy. What do you think, Elizabeth? says Hazard, haughtily ignoring this demonstration and turning somewhat coldly to me. I'm not sure that you could say hidden wealth of a cloister, I answered. Somehow, it doesn't sound exactly historical. Oyster, he says. Oh, oyster, murmured Jeff. Whereat Ernie, who had controlled herself beautifully up to that moment, gave vent to one enthusiastic whoop and disappeared backward into the flying machine. I see, says Hazy, with really magnificent aplomb, that I have made a mistake. You are not in the proper mood to appreciate the thing. But whatever criticisms you may make, at least you'll be bound to admit that it sums the situation. With which remark, he stalked from the room. Dear precious fellow, evidently he has been thinking. But why, oh, why will he always take himself so seriously? Monday, December 8th. This afternoon, Mother let Robin up in the big wicker rocking chair in the nursery window. He was so glad, poor darling, for he has spent the last three days in bed. The street was full of snow, and the boys were having a fine time with their shovels, their sleds, and a small black and tan terrier which pranced here and there, yapping excitedly. Two of the taller fellows were busy making a path in front of their house. A little chap with glowing cheeks and a red cap had improvised a slide on the half-cleared pavement, while others were engaged in a brisk snowball fight. Bobsy, pale but delighted, watched everything with eager approbation. "'That's the smartest dog!' he cried. "'His name is Buster. Come and see, Elizabeth. If he thinks they're going to hit him with a snowball, he'll run away. But if he thinks they're going to hit somebody else, he'll just stand there and bark and wag his tail. You can't fool Buster.' How do you know his name? I asked. Pooh, boasted Bobs. That's easy, for a person who looks out of windows as much as me. I know all the boys' names, too, and where they live, and whether they have sisters. I pretend that they are my friends, and that I'm out there playing with them. You can hardly tell the difference sometimes. We have such fun. I'm glad you do, darling, I answered. Which game do you like best to play? Oh, that depends on the time of year, answered Robin judicially. I've watched until I know all about it. In summer there's Cat and Prisoner's Base. When fall comes, we have football in the corner lot, and some of us wear nose guards. Then there's snowballing and sliding all winter, and in the spring, marbles again. Only John and me don't play for keeps, because our mothers wouldn't like it. Which is John? I asked. He's the little one with the red cap, who's sliding, answered Robin. I like him best, because he is such a kind boy. Why, one day, Ellie... 
when my legs ached so i couldn't pretend to go out even for a few minutes john was the only one who missed me the others kept right on playing but he stopped all of a sudden and looked up at the window and smiled so now i've taken him for my chum wouldn't you yes honey i answered i think he must be a very nice little boy he is agreed robin proudly the day we broke the baker's window and the cop chased us john ran faster than anybody of course it was easy for me all i had to do was pretend to dodge in here and slam the door quick but watch we're going to give buster a ride now isn't that fun the black and tan terrier seemed to think it was he kept his place well in the middle of the sled tail up tongue lolling while two of the boys seized the rope and followed by the others made madly off the gay cavalcade disappearing noisily around the corner robin dropped back among his pillows with a disappointed little sigh i'm sorry they've gone so soon he said because you see i can't pretend to play excepting only on this block then he laid his cheek up against my arm sometimes those little boys must be sick too mustn't they he asked and i guess it's pretty hard then for they aren't used to it like me there's a lot in being used to a thing isn't there ellie dear oh if we could only feel that robin was growing stronger i pray for it every night and so do mother and hayes and ernie i know and we pretend to think that he is and tell each other that it is because of the cold weather he feels wretched so much of the time but in our secret hearts well the doctor has ordered a new kind of cod liver oil it is very nasty and costs eighty-five cents a bottle perhaps it will do robin good end of section three Recording by Colleen McMahon.